Hi there, this is Seth Abramovich, senior writer at The Hollywood Reporter, and I'm your host on It Happened in Hollywood. This week, we have one of the most gloriously weird cult films from the mid-80s, starring Harry Dean Stanton and Emilio Estevez. All that and more on this week's episode of It Happened in Hollywood. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed last week's season premiere with Terry Gilliam. That was a lot of fun. And this week's is fun, too. I arrive at the movies and the guests that I feature on the show in different ways. This week was kind of circuitous in that uh, it started as another film, Kiss Me Deadly, which is from 1955. Very strange film noir that's very influential and um, features a glowing box which is supposed to represent angst over uh, the the nuclear threat hanging over the United States. And um, it's been borrowed by other filmmakers, including Tarantino, who used it in Pulp Fiction, and this week's guest, Alex Cox, writer-director of 1984's Repo Man. It was suggested to me by a listener, Chris LeClaire, a screenwriter, and... Um, when he, we were discussing Kiss Me Deadly, he reminded me of Repo Man and how it used another glowing box. And I thought, wow, well, that would be a great episode. So thanks, Chris. And here we have it. Alex is a British guy. He's sort of the opposite of what Terry Gilliam did. He was born in Britain and then was drawn to the United States in the 70s. And he attended UCLA Film School. And this was his first feature. Luckily for him, uh, and he'll explain how it happened, Mike Nesmith from The Monkees. Hey, hey, we're the monkeys. And people say we monkey around. Became a fan of his talent and the script and uh, hooked him up with a universal producer. And so it became a universal production. Interestingly enough, in 1998, he was supposed to write and direct Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, but um, he ended up writing it and being dropped from the film as director, replaced by last week's guest, Terry Gilliam. So lots of connecting threads here. He later directed Sid and Nancy, which was a biopic about uh, Sid Vicious from The Sex Pistols and Nancy Spungen, uh, his American girlfriend and their doomed romance. But this was his first and a very beloved cult classic from 1984 and one thing I want you to pay attention to is the influence of punk rock on this film. Um, there was definitely a hardcore scene bubbling up in the West Coast at the time. And Alex Cox was a fan of punk in England. And um, he definitely made that part of the soundtrack and part of the uh, the cast. And uh, it, it really pulses through the entire film and kind of gives it its esprit de corps. So... Um, Punk will be a recurring theme this season. This is just the first example of it. So enjoy the music that comes with it and enjoy this interview. Alex Cox, director of Repo Man. Let's get started. Repo Man. This film uh, first came to my attention in high school when uh, a lot of my 
punk-loving friends, the boys mostly, would quote it incessantly in class and outside class. And um, I eventually, I was like, well, I have to see this movie. Everyone's talking about it. And I saw it, and it really uh, blew my mind, my teenage mind. Uh, it had so many things that appealed to me. Um, none of them were ones that you associate with mainstream Hollywood movie. You had punk rock and uh, just this very uh, rule-breaking DIY aesthetic, and it just was very cool. It was the coolest movie there was. Wow, um, thank you very much. <laughs> and I watched it again recently, as I always do on the show, and um, boy, did I did I enjoy it. Uh, it's It really has its own... Um, language and rhythm and internal logic and uh and you you come away kind of wanting to go back to that world let's hope so <laughs> um and i know that you know various uh sequels and things have been discussed over the years but we'll get to that at the end at first i want to start at the very beginning so let's talk about uh, how you got to ucla let's start there uh you did you go there with the intention of making films or what brought you to ucla yes with the intention of making films i had a fulbright a uh, fellowship from the from the Fulbright Foundation to go to UCLA for a year and study film. And you studied uh, like fil the film history and uh, Kurosawa and all the greats. I will. I don't. I mean, I, it should be that way. Yeah, that's definitely what should happen at film school. <laughs> Student, the students should be forced to see nothing but great films for a year before they do anything else. But I, I, I. I was in the critical studies program for the first year and then transferred to the production program my second and third years uh, there in graduate school. And, but definitely I think it was, it's a, you know, the more you sit watching great films in a darkened, in a darkened cinema, the better. And who were your biggies? Who did you really just uh, idolize? My favorite filmmakers were um, Bunuel mm -hmm. um, and... And Kurosawa, of course, and also, uh, but I was a big fan of cowboy films too. I loved Sam Peckinpah, and I loved Sergio Leone and the Italian westerns and um, Melville, all the boy directors. <laughs> and um, in terms of, uh, you know, you came out of England, so uh, this is just set us in the era. Is it the era of the Sex Pistols and punk uh, uh, ascending, the, the the Clash, or when? Who, what yeah, world did you come I mean, out of? Was I? It was like 1977 was when I went to the United States, and 77 was when it really kicked off. Although it was obviously happening in 76 as well, and so I was in Los Angeles for the the great. English fluorescence of punk, but um, then it came to Los Angeles. Then it showed up in in LA in its own very specific form, and I was around for that, and that was quite fascinating. And were you of the fold of the punk fold? Were you a punk yourself, or you just were observing as an artist? And no, intrigued? I definitely. I had the haircut, and uh, I had a checkered shirt and a t-shirt. Definitely, I was definitely part of the punk movement of Los Angeles. Um, a little old for it, really. I mean, I was because I mean there were a lot of younger people than than me, but but it was just so thrilling because there were just so many good bands. You know, there was like X and and Fear and and Suicidal Tendencies and the Plugs, uh, and there's so many amazing bands. The Weirdos, 
so many great bands, you know, and it was all happening, all fluorescing. And at the same time, these bands from outside the city were coming to Los Angeles as well. Like, like um, Devo came and played in the basement and, <laughs> um, and uh, Talking Heads played at UCLA, you know, um, and The Clash came, you know, what could be more exciting? I know there's just something so uh, refreshingly lo-fi and authentic about it. And, uh, and your film really captures that that moment. And I, I love these films that capture a moment. Last season, we did Desperately Seeking Susan, and we did After Hours, and it was more of a New York 80s, you know, lightning in a bottle. But I love that this is uh, punk and L.A. It's a whole different and other, thing. And, yeah, and the other film to pair with it, which is also those two things, is Penelope Spears' film Suburbia, mm. which also takes place in, the, in a punk environment, um, has a lot of music, and and... And we and we're both films made at the same time, as I recall. Yeah, it just seemed like uh, you know, throw the rule book out era. It was just like let's just do this, um, and uh, it's very exciting to watch because it feels fresh. It's not playing by any rule book. I think partially it's the cinematographers too, because we had Robbie Mueller shooting it, and he had been Vin Vendor's cinematographer. They'd shot Kings of the Road and uh, the American Friend, so they had a they had a very good relationship and a very good way of filmmaking. I'm sure that some of that rubbed off on us from Robbie. And then when Robbie went back to the, uh, went, went back to Germany, oh no, actually he went off to shoot Paris, Texas, and then went back to Germany when we needed to shoot some more. Uh, Robert Richardson, uh, it was his first feature film. And so I think the two of them contributed a great deal. And also they're, they're, they're the guy who lit the film, Greg Gardner, really created that visual aspect inside the cars when harry dean is driving through los angeles in his car there's an internal lighting in the car which is very specific and and really and and, and creates a tremendous atmosphere yes it's an absolutely beautiful film and i guess it's worth saying that um uh, Harry Dean Stanton, uh, you know, went on to become the lead actor in Paris, Texas, and I guess uh, we uh, we have your cinematographer Robbie Mueller to thank for that. He, I think, he recommended him based on his work in Repo Man. Is that right? Yes, I think so. Because as I recall, um, they got the money for it, and right after Repo Man, um, Vin Bendis was going to make Paris, Texas, uh, but with Dean Stockwell in the lead. Mm. And then Robbie, after you know, that's the first day of Repo Man, Robbie calls Vin Vendors from his motel that evening and says, you've got to check out this guy, Harry Dean Stanton. <laughs> and sure enough, you know, he became the lead. And Dean Stockwell has got a major role in, in, uh, in Paris, Texas, but it's boy. I mean, Harry Dean is incredible in it. He's incredible. I mean, what a legend. And, um, what an amazing performance in this film. But um, we're getting ahead of ourselves a bit. So I, I want to first figure out how you came up with this idea of uh, of a sort of sci-fi meets Repo Man, uh, urban crime sci-fi story. I don't even know how you describe it. But um, well, I, I had wanted to make a film about the danger of nuclear war, you know, mm. and the immorality of the neutron bomb in the imminence of our, of our nuclear doom. And somehow nobody seemed to want to f make a film, make or brother finance a film with that as its principal theme. So then I thought, okay, what I'll do is I'll tie it, tie it together with the repo business because I have a neighbor who's a repo man and I'm going to ride around in his car and learn the repo trade from my friend. And then I'll combine that with the 
the you know the the, the deranged nuclear scientist drifting through Los Angeles in his car with a nuclear bomb in the back. Um, but but then there wasn't a lot of enthusiasm for that either. So then I thought, okay, well, <laughs> I'll combine like the nuclear bomb in the back of the car with the repo men with punk rock, you know, <laughs> and teenagers, you know, and and that seemed to be the combination that 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 finally worked. And aliens. <laughs> and aliens as well. Oh yeah, and aliens and make it look like a 50 science fiction movie. Yes. Yes. Um, I love uh, that you, you mentioned the, that sort of uh, atomic angst because uh, this was, of course, during the the uh, Cold War and Ronald Reagan was president and there really was that uh, hanging over everyone, uh, just this fear of, of nuclear annihilation. And I feel like it's come around again in a way. I mean, now the way we talk about World War III and Russia and uh, Ukraine, there's, there is this um, nuclear angst. And, um, and then the film itself, uh, I, I believe, is inspired by Kiss Me Deadly, which was also under the post-World War II nuclear angst. I think the structure, the structure is inspired by Kiss Me Deadly because Dennis Dolan, the editor of the, of the film, was, was very keen that we like give it a little bit more structural complexity and i think it was his idea that we should shoot a couple more scenes involving the the, the you know the trunk opening and then i'm thinking well if the trunk's going to open and a light's going to come out it's going to be like kiss me deadly you know and so then we <laughs> kind of followed the structure i think it's the same number of trunk openings as box openings in kiss me deadly and each time with more you know with more serious consequences and Kiss Me Deadly, another uh, classic uh, L.A. film. Uh, I just watched it again yeah. recently, and so beautiful and and weird and great. And what do you think it is about that? Uh, they call it the Great What's It in the in Kiss Me Deadly, but there is a box and it glows and it's in a locker, and uh, eventually it opens up and people get burned alive. And what what is it about that that, that narrative uh, a thing that that so captivates or works in movies? Well, I think, I mean, in that sense, it's just it's reflecting that this, the, the terrible fear of, of, of those times of the 50s and of the 80s of a nuclear catastrophe, you know, and that the nuclear power plant would blow up or that, you know, we'd be caught in like a Hiroshima type explosion. Um, ironically, I mean, if it was stolen nuclear material in that Mike Hammer encounters in Kiss Me Deadly um, or, or that Otto encounters in, in Repo Man, it wouldn't, um, it would, I don't imagine it would glow. It would just <laughs> right. ir irradiate him in the most horrible way and kill him with bone cancer within a couple of weeks, you know. But that's not, but that's not so cinematic. Therefore, right. the stolen nuclear material has to glow. And the, all the aliens, <laughs> whatever it is in there, has right. to glow. No? It, I, I love it. I, it's such a beautiful homage and um, it works in both films equally well. And they do it in, in, in Pulp Fiction as well. I mean, it's the same thing. That's There's a right. case there that I think that, that Tim Roth has got where they open the thing and the light comes out and you think, ah, what can it be? But you know it's like stolen nuclear material because it always is. <laughs> so then you, did you take all these different uh, disparate elements and then sit down and write the screenplay? Or uh, I, I know that uh, Dick Rude had something to do with it, who plays his friend in it, right? Did he, did he have anything to do with the screenplay writing? Or? Dick Rude and his friend Brant Reiter had written a 12-page screenplay called Leather Rubbernecks okay. uh, about punk rock teenagers in L.A. And I think I stole the names of the two principal characters, Otto and Duke. <laughs> um, and but I wrote no, but there was a regular script for Repo Man. In fact, I think there were like fourteen different 
drafts of Repo Man as as we kept, you know, printing them up and at the photocopy shop, which as, as it used to be in those days, and sending them out in the U.S. mail to Peter McCarthy, one of the producers, estimated that we sent out a hundred copies of the script of Repo Man. Just to, to get interest or, or no, no, to try and get money, you know, to, to try to get money might might finance it. And so um, uh, Michael Nesmith, the best known for the monkeys, he came on as a producer. What's he? Script yes. number 100 reached Michael Nesmith, you know, and, <laughs> and somehow he was interested in it or he was interested in it by somebody else that he knew, told him about it, and he became our executive producer. And that, that was what pushed it over the edge to actually get made. Yes, he found the money. Incredible. Yep. Wonderful, wonderful, a wonderful thing to happen. It was tremendous that Nesmith became our executive producer and did that. And... uh uh, but it's also wonderful that you sent out a hundred of them, you know, because some people might give up at 99, but you kept I know, going. Well, wasn't it lucky? You see, Peter never gives up. Peter is indefatigable. <laughs> that's that's great. And so so then how did Universal get involved? Uh, because it is a Universal film, right? That was Yeah, that was Nesmith. I mean, it was, it was um, Nesmith had sent it to Universal and they had rejected it. And then... Um, one evening, Nesmith found himself in a bar called Morton's, a watering hole for the Hollywood execs of the day. Sure. And he was, he recalled, he was in there with somebody's manager, um, uh, the manager, the manager of Kenny Rogers, I think, who also wanted to manage Nesmith. And this guy was a bit of a player, you know. And so he says to Mike, and, and they're all there, and, he's, and, and all these executives are there, and they're all there in cowboy-style jumpsuits. Because that was the fashion of the day in Hollywood executive land. And something to do with urban cowboy. And so so, so this guy, the manager, goes, so what are you working on today, Michael? What, you, what, what, what projects have you got going? And Michael goes, well, you know, I had a good project going, but it didn't seem to go anywhere. You know, it was called Repo Man. And it was a good script, you know, bright, bright young guys making it, but just couldn't get it going, you know. Um, and this, this manager guy goes, well... Did you send it to Universal? And Nesmith goes, yeah, they just rejected it yesterday. And, and the manager goes, look over there. Standing at the bar is Bob Ramey, head of Universal. Hey, Bob, Bob, over here. Get over here. You know, and Ramey comes over. What? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, and they introduce him. They've met before. And he goes, you know, Michael Nesmith's here. And he's got a great script, you know, which you guys just rejected. What's it called, Michael? And Michael goes, uh, Repo Man. Repo Man, it's a great script. You know, why aren't you making it? And this, this Ramey, the head of the studio, totally on the spot in this bar, goes, well, uh, uh, what's the budget, Michael? And Michael goes, a million in the bet, you know. And, and, and Ramey goes, well, I, I guess we are, you know. And, and the next day, Nesmith gets a call from a very disgruntled assistant of Ramey called Tom Mount, who goes, you know that repo man script that we passed on? And Nesmith goes, yeah. And he goes, well, I guess we're doing it. And that Amazing. was a story. Of how it, that was a story of how it happened because Nesmith, who wasn't a drinker and didn't go out, you know, to bars very much, you know, was just was had been taken out to this Morton's this one time by a, a guy who wanted to uh, impress him. You know, that is amazing. I love that story Isn't because that funny, funny story. You know, LA is not the easiest place to live, but once in a while you you have these party moments that make something happen. And I can't talk about it yet, but I have a story happening now that happened at a at a St. Patrick's Day party. That's how it started. And um I realized if I didn't live here, 
it never would have happened. And, and it's like, well, that's why I live here. It's like to make those those magic connections. And uh, and here you're living proof because the film would not have been made otherwise. Nesmith. Nesmith is living proof because he oh, his <laughs> magical nature included not only the monkeys, but his mother inventing liquid paper. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> he was set for life one way or the other. Yeah, it was amazing. <laughs> what a, what a, yeah, yeah. And so... At that point, had you just had been thinking about casting? Did you know who you wanted, or then you started casting and it became a real we'd thing? D- we'd done a lot of casting. Um, Vicky Thomas, who was the casting director, she had been working on the film for some months, and so we'd interviewed a lot of people. I'd already talked to Harry Dean about doing it. Um, as soon as um, the money came, we um, we went out to Dennis Harper and offered him the lead role, but his agent wanted slightly more money than was in the budget. And so, uh, and, and, and so Harry Dean was like, you know, our second choice, but really he should have been the first choice because he was, he was perfect. I never broke into a car, I never hotwired a car, kid. I never broke into a trunk. I shall not cause harm to any vehicle nor the personal contents thereof, nor through inaction let that vehicle or the personal contents thereof come to harm. It's what I call the repo code, kid. Don't forget it, etch it in your brain. Not many people got a code to live by anymore. Hey, look, look at that. Look at those assholes over there. Ordinary fucking people. I hate them. <sighs> Me too. What do you know? So wonderful. And then I had read somewhere a rumor that they wanted Mick Jagger to play his part. Oh, that was funny. That was his own agent. I went to see his agent uh, because I don't even know. I guess he didn't know what anything was, you know. And so I, as the director of the film, went to thank the agent for having a great client like Harry. And <laughs> and I'm in the in the office, and the guy says, "Harry Dean's too old for this. You don't want to saddle your movie with an old guy. You want somebody younger and more vital. How about Mick Jagger for the role?" His and own agent? This, yeah, yeah, because this guy also was the agent of Mick Jagger. Um, Unbelievable. Yeah, and so I'm, I'm like clutching my pearls. No, no, you know, <laughs> swimming with sharks. Indeed, <laughs> that was funny. Well, you made the right choice. I mean, he's he's such a wonderfully brilliant, understated actor. Yeah, yeah, he's quite a he's quite a brilliant actor. Quite a um, it's, it's quite a great performance. And then, of course, uh, in the part of Otto, our lead hero, you cast Emilio Estevez, and this was uh, a, at least a year before the Breakfast Club when he became a superstar. What did you see in Emilio? He had done it. He had done um, a Francis Coppola film called The Outsiders, and there's a right. scene in The Outsiders where he, he at the end of the scene, he sits down and opens a refrigerator and takes out a can of beer and a chocolate cake, and starts drinking the beer and eating the cake simultaneously. And I just thought that's the guy, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah, he's he's wonderful in it too. And he's very, um, good. He's very deadpan and very cool, and, and yeah, just right. Put it on a plate, son. You'll enjoy it more. Couldn't enjoy it anymore, Mom. Mm-mm-mm. This is swell. Dad? Hey, Dad. What is it, son? Do you remember what you once told me a long time ago? Well, not too long ago. But um, that you told me that you'd give me $1,000 to go to Europe if I finished school. Well, you know something? You were right about finishing school. That's, that's what I'd like to do. But um, I want to know if I can have the money first. Like now. 
Speaking of uh, eating cake and drinking beer, there's uh, one thing that runs through the whole movie is is these uh, generic uh, supermarket products. Mm -hmm. Um, They drink beer that says beer on it, and they eat food out of a can that says food on it. Mm Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if you could tell me how that got incorporated. Was that in the script or did, did that, uh, was that more happenstance? It was, in, it was in a draft of the script, but I think it came when we realized that we couldn't get the, um, couldn't get really any product placement. We thought we'd get like a whole load of free beer for the production unit, but we couldn't get any product placement apart from the Christmas trees, uh, the little, the little Christmas tree air fresheners. And so we just thought, well, you know, then forget about it. We're not going to have any products, you know, and we're just going to have generic goods. And luckily, Ralph's supermarket in Los Angeles had started their own generic line with that branding, that very bland white box with a blue and black line. And so we, they did, they did, and they didn't, and they had, and they sold beer. They didn't sell something. They didn't sell a product called drink or a product called food, but they did sell a product called beer. So we just bought, <laughs> or they, they donated it. In fact, they were also, uh, they did generously donated a bunch of generic products for our supermarket scenes. <laughs> and so you, you made uh, like mock ones that said food and like that matched the, the, the other ones. Exactly. Hilarious. And then, and then the, the, um, the the tree uh, uh, the the air fresheners um, that that was a they just donated those or they paid to be in the film no no they just donated them because it was true that was in the script from the very beginning because my uh, my neighbor Mark Lewis who took me around on the repo trips you know to see what the business was like um, he said we you're going to find one of these Christmas trees in every car you repossess because the only person who would spend money on a flaky thing like this and hang it in their car is the kind of flake who won't pay what they owe you know? <laughs> I'm, I'm oh okay you know but then it was true every Hilarious. car that i was involved in repossessing had one of those air fresheners either hanging from the mirror on the floor isn't that funny i mean and you can still every time you go get your car washed they have those you know where you pay that you can buy yeah, those off the yeah, wall yeah. and they smell disgusting i don't know why anyone yeah. would put them in their car and if you but if you get one you're the kind of flake loser who's gonna like not pay <laughs> their, their repo payments either but i love that you went to the company and they they donated some to you so you know they even, were a even better they said do you want them with or without the smell <laughs> oh we're like oh without the smell of course and like, I thought so <laughs> Which brings us to the, the the whole car element of it. And I, I happen to be in the, in between cars right now. So I'm fully in the L.A. auto mindset. And there's something about until you live in L.A., you don't quite know what it is. <laughs> but then once you're here, you are so dependent on your car. It is such a car-centric place. And I really got off on that part of the movie, that, you know, that they are taking away these people's like family members, but even though it's just a car and, uh, and the lengths that people will go to get revenge on, on, on them for, for doing such a thing and what a dangerous job it was. Yeah. All that is true because people need their cars, you know, unless you've got a lot of time on your hands, you need a car. And so you actually went on ride arounds and, and did what auto did. You, you, you repoed yes. cars. Yes. And, I would repo cars and I would get $25. If I drove the car back to the repo yard, I would get 25 bucks. <laughs> now, was this in, in uh, the name of research, or did you actually need some spending money? Oh, both. I mean, I, yeah. I mean, who wouldn't like twenty five dollars? You know, but also it was, it was research. You know, it was it was good 
it was really interesting and and uh it in, and and it informs the the movie all of the stuff that Harry Dean says is stuff that I heard repo men say most often my, you know my neighbor and it's such classic dialogue i mean there's all these mantras and and things that they they say so can you remind us of some of those great lines um well, they, was harry the, harry dean had amalgamated a lot of lines that were separated into the repo code you know where you're right. insisting about what you, all the things you mustn't do um but i i couldn't remember any of them now i mean and there's also there's a whole bunch of good speeches in the in the film there's there's tracy walter as miller has a very long speech about time machines and why people disappear in Latin America and and why he doesn't drive. Right. You know? Because the more you drive, the less intelligent you are. I do my best thinking on the bus. That's how come I don't drive, see? You don't even know how to drive. I don't want to know how. I don't want to learn, see? The more you drive, the less intelligent you are. I remember one is never die for a car. <laughs> I like only that one. Only an asshole gets killed for a car. Only an asshole gets killed for a car. The guys that make it are the guys that get in their cars at any time. Now, only an asshole gets killed for a car. And that's um, and then there's the sushi line. There's a line about don't go. Let's go. Let's go and get sushi and not pay. Oh dear, what a shame. Come on, Duke. Let's go do those crimes. Yeah. Yeah, let's go get sushi and, and not pay. <laughs> yeah, it's a highly, highly quotable script, which is, I think, why all my friends in high school were uh, were saying it to each other. Just just the line uh, where he introduces himself as Otto, and they go, like, Otto Parts? That used nah, to be... Nah, nah, nah. Got a name, kid? Yeah, it's Otto. Otto? Otto Parts? And I should say, I have a little Frenchie now, and his name is Otto. So that's a little tribute oh, wow, to... Oh, that's uh, very nice. Yes. <laughs> um, so, okay, so you you have this great script and this crazy out there plot, but uh, it, it really comes together. It's it's truly uh, magical. And, and I think you, you filmed it 40 years ago, almost to the day, right? In, in, uh, in L.A.? Uh, let me think. It was filmed in 1983 uh, in... July and August. So, so yes, it's coming up. July and August will be the 40th anniversary of the shoot of Repo Man. Was it a, a smooth shoot? Did the, did the city cooperate? And uh... oh, the city was fine because the city was much smaller in those days. I mean, it was a much um, you know, it was there were far fewer buildings, there was far less traffic, there was no surveillance. Um, it was very different. But today, it would be a more complicated undertaking. Yeah, it just it did have the the punk ethos to it. I felt like you guys were kind of like getting away with something, um, but maybe yeah, that's... because a lot no, a lot of the time we didn't have permits. You know, we did have permits for some of the big things that we did or things that involved stunt driving. But then we would just go and do other stuff, and you know, as if we were still as students at UCLA. You know, and and uh, that was obviously very naughty. But that, you could get away with it in those days because there wasn't you know. There weren't so many people. There weren't people living living on the street. There weren't so many cops. There weren't so wasn't so much traffic. And it was your first film. So were you learning on the job, or did because it's a very oh, yeah. accomplished, complicated, technically complicated film? But you you did it with a plum. So how? But that that was thanks to the the people that I worked with. That was thanks to like the really good actors, 
um, that we had, and, and thanks to the producers who were great, who were really, really fantastic and very able and creative producers, and and thanks to the technical people, the sound, the sound guys, and the and the and the camera departments, and the um, and the music, you know, the great music, and also the great editor Dennis Dolan, who really did put his mark on it as well. I mean, it was a it was a real collaborative enterprise that that so began with Nesmith and ended with Iggy Pop, you know. Which brings us to the music. Um, and as I understand it, it, the music, which is an incredible soundtrack, uh, which includes classic punk bands, uh, we mentioned a few already, Suicidal Tendencies, Black Flag, Iggy Pop sings the title song. Now, how did you get these people to agree to this to do this film? Or and and then, as I understand it, the soundtrack actually gave the film a second chance at an audience. Yeah, well, it wasn't hard to get the bands involved for the most part because the um, I knew some of the people involved, like Tito from uh, the Plugs. I knew, and and I guess I knew the Circle Jerks just by going to shows, you know. And so we had asked. And, and fear, of course. Um, so we just asked them, can we have one of your songs in the film? You know, and then once we started amassing the songs, Iggy had come out to LA to check out the scene because New York felt to him like it atrophied, you know, and so he got a little apartment off of Hollywood Boulevard, you know, Sunset Boulevard, you know, up on the strip, you know, and, and, and to check out the scene, you know, and so he, did this song with the, with one of the guys from the Sex Pistols playing the guitar, you know, and, so it was just very fortuitous that L.A. was this, had this kind of gravitational thing or pull as far as rock and roll was concerned in the, in the late 70s and early 80s. And so you put this soundtrack together and then uh, Universal sees the final cut and, and it's, they, they, how do they feel about, about the film? Well, by that point, there'd been a regime change at the studio. Uh, Bob Raby was out and a new uh, studio head was in. And so as often happens when there's a regime change, the, uh, the, new, the new regime has to like discount all the previous regime's projects. And ours was among the discountees, along with um, uh, a couple of films that actually I thought was very good, um, Rumblefish. Sure. So among among the turkeys that they were dumping, you know, or, or throwing into the into the dumpster, they, there was uh, there were actually two good films. There was Repo Man and there was Rumblefish. And Repo Man got saved from studio oblivion by uh, by the record, because at that point the studio was part of a larger conglomerate, the MCA Music conglomerate. And so at one point, Irving Azoff, who was in charge of uh, of MCA calls his homologue at, over at uh, Universal, Lou Wasserman or whoever it is, and says, Lou, you know, uh, we got this record here, Repo Man, you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's selling like hotcakes over there in Baltimore and uh, New York and, and Akron, Ohio. And uh, is there a movie that goes with this? You know, and, <laughs> and so they actually re-released Repo Man and Rumblefish under the auspices of a new 
little mini company that I think was called Universal Spe Special Handling or Universal Classics or something. And, uh, and so it actually, yeah, so it made it into the theaters. And then it played opposite Iggy Pop's flat in Bleecker Street in New York. It played in one cinema, I think, for like a year and a half. So it it had a very short initial run and then it became like a like a repertory re-release or? Yes. So, yes. Okay. Wow. Yeah, it played very briefly in, in it, played, it played for a week in LA and Chicago and then was done. I was going to go straight to uh, uh, cable. Uh, and I think it did play on cable, but even after it had been on cable, then all of a sudden it got a theatrical re-release. And then, of course, it became this cult sensation. Yeah, so it was very, you know, so it, it in the end, there it is to this day. And I, it also cor corresponded with the rise of VHS or Betamax and home video, and uh, because I, I'm sure that's how I saw it originally. And, and I, Nesmith, again, the smartness of Nesmith, because Nesmith kept the video rights to Repo Man. He reserved them for his company, Pacific Arts, I think for 10 years. So the, so the VHS you saw, it might have been not a universal VHS, but a Pacific Arts VHS. There you go. And it's a testament to his his uh, intuition. He obviously yep. Ha yep. had the, the magic touch. Yeah, and he was and, and, and prescient in that way. So even though he wasn't into punk rock, you know, but he was still he he you know he didn't in the end kind of to fight against it. You know? And when the movie originally was there, like a premiere, or did it, was there a, par a party? Like how how did it originally didn't, like bow? No, I don't think there was a party, no. <laughs> no, I mean, it came out in Chicago and played for a week and played for a week in L.A. Um, so it truly is one of these these uh, miracle films, I consider them. They're films that are, like sh could have easily just disappeared. Yeah, we were very lucky. We were very lucky, yeah. Um, and that was really thanks to this, you know, the, the record doing so well and a guy called Kelly Neal, who ran this Universal Classics division and had only two films to distribute, Repo Man and Rumblefish. When you were hunting down all these these punk songs, did, did it occur to you that, uh, oh, you know, a, a best-selling soundtrack is a, is a great marketing uh, tool? Or were you just saying, I love this music? No, Jonathan Wax, the other producer, Peter McCarthy and Jonathan Wax were the producing team. And Jonathan Wax said, this is going to be the easy rider of the 80s. And we're going, ah, no, John, you're crazy. Shut up, you know. And yes, but that was true because of the musical aspect. Because that was what really made or contributed to the phenomenon of, of Easy Rider as well was the soundtrack. Very interesting. And yeah, it came to pass. That's so cool. Jonathan, is he prescient? You surrounded yourself with good people. Lucky. Yeah, yeah. Many of whom were alumni of UCLA. <laughs> it's great. Last season it was everyone was USC, but I like to hear what UCLA has to offer. Oh, this was a good generation. We were all in awe of uh, Charles Burnett because Charles Burnett had been uh, ahead of you know the generation ahead of us at UCLA, or half a generation, you know. And so we had a print of Killer of Sheep, a sixteen millimeter print, and would watch this and think that's the best student film ever made. <laughs> and it was, and it's a great. Not just a student film, it's one of the best films ever made, you know, it's incredible. So Charles wow. was like our, our film hero, and Penelope Spears had gone before us as well, you know, so. So I have to ask, you know, so you, you put all this effort into this 
quirky, uh, out-of-the-box film. It almost dies. Then it has the second life. And and what does that do for you, for your for your ego and for your career? And, and uh, w- what becomes of Alex Cox after this movie becomes a cult hit? Oh, it's just stuff, you know. I mean, you can just look at the <laughs> films that I made, when I made them, and who financed them. And, you know, the the story is clear, you know. I made some... Uh, I made two or three films in fairly quick succession, but then culminated this uh, this early burst of exciting work, much of it funded by the studio by doing a film called Walker in Nicaragua, which brought me into terrible disrepute. Um because the U.S. was at war with Nicaragua at the time. And we made a film about the American guy who was like the first American president of Nicaragua. And Ed Harris played it like perfectly. So the film upset a lot of people. And then I made a lot more films, but in different circumstances. I made several films in Mexico. I became an actor in the Mexican cinema. And I appeared as an actor in the most popular Mexican film of all time. No Rodes, La Lady Rodes, directed by Luis Estrada. Wow. What did you play in that? I played an evil gringo who hates Mexicans. <laughs> uh, Mr. Robert, do you think that um, democracy is the solution for countries like Mexico? No, 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 no. We Americans also like dictatorships like yours. <laughs> <laughs> so... I, I'm just curious about the the attempts to make a sequel. I assume people oh. have approached you. <laughs> no, we have a, a, a. I and the producers, um, various producers over the years, have approached Universal um, because until recently, Universal had the rights to the sequel. So we, uh, on various occasions, reached out to Universal over the years to say, "Let's do a sequel." And on one occasion, we had a script that was then called Otto's Hawaiian Holiday. And <laughs> Peter McCarthy and Jonathan Wax, uh, uh, all, they, they lived in Santa Fe. Michael Nesmith lived in uh, Carmel. Um, and I don't know where I lived, but I, we all went to LA for the meeting about Otto's Hawaiian Holiday. We were having a meeting with the Universal exec to discuss making the sequel at last, uh, about 10 years after the film. So... We get there, and as we go in, we see all of the all of these dustbins outside the offices overflowing with like repo man publicity materials, which have all just been put in the trash. I think that's a bit strange, isn't it? What an odd pre- what an odd odd thing to see before you go into the meeting. So then we go into the meeting with the the then executive, this young lady, and. Uh, talked to her about the script, et cetera. Nesmith's there, Wax, McCarthy, and me. And at the end of the meeting, she says, oh, yeah, well, I really must watch this movie Repo Man. <laughs> I was thinking, oh, my. That's <laughs> not what you want to hear. Yeah, we came all this way for a meeting with somebody who hasn't even seen the film. And Nesmith was so annoyed, Nesmith swore that he would never go to Los Angeles again for any reason wow and, and I, I don't know i don't imagine that that really came to pass because then when the beat when, when i mean when the monkeys toured i'm sure they played in la what about emilio has he ever expressed an interest in returning to auto 
He was at one point going to do it, but then he dropped out. It was unfortunate because I think we were at another point. We were going to we were going to do Otto's Hawaiian Holiday as Waldo's Hawaiian Holiday, and so it wouldn't it would look kind of different, but be the same script. And he was going to be in that for a while, but then he dropped out. I don't know what happened. But more interestingly, um, a few years ago, about three or four years ago, the rights to Repo Man. Um, screenplay sequels remakes etc reverted to me mm. so that means that now it's possible for me to do a sequel to repo man 40 years later oh my god you got to do it yeah get, get the whole cast back together yeah well we'll see because some some aren't with us anymore but um it's a it's something that we should do and while we while we survive you know the survivors and also, I think there's a still a certain residual interest in the old Repo Man phenomenon because I went a month ago to the music hall in San Francisco where a group called the Red Room Orchestra did a Repo Man show where they did like all the music from the film, not only the punk rock stuff, but the boogie-woogie stuff that, that Harry Dean Stanton listened to in his car. Um, they did all of this stuff and into interspersed it with with clips of dialogue from the film and and had some of the original repo people there including tito lariva of the uh, plugs and xander schloss of the uh of the circle jerks um and me uh there and it was really there and it must have had a like about it was a capacity i imagine of the place was five or six hundred people and it was full so that was pretty good there you go. There's yeah. got to be legions out there that would kill at for... At least we can go on tour. At least we can take <laughs> the music, we can do the Repo Man musical show and take it on tour. <laughs> I, I got back and I called my friend Satya, who lives by the Hollywood Bowl, and I said, Satya, we had a great time up there in this auditorium. How, how, what about the bowl? How, you know, how, how, what's the capacity of the bowl? And he goes, the Hollywood Bowl seats like 200,000 people and is booked up three years in advance. Would you like me to investigate further? Uh, no, <laughs> we'll seek a different venue. I, th I think the Hollywood Bowl is closer to 15,000, and I'm sure people would love to come out and see all those bands play. He told me 200,000. He was way what? off. 15,000. 15, we could easy, easy fill the Hollywood Bowl. Maybe you could turn it into a Broadway musical. Oh, man. That would be, <laughs> now, that would be, yeah, yeah, with flying cars. Yeah. <laughs> well, they have, uh, you know, Back to the Future now is coming to Broadway, so I don't see why Repo Man couldn't come to Broadway. That's so funny. <laughs> um, I have one other question now. There's a, yeah. a, a famous speech in, in the film um, that you've, I know you've written about, um, and it's, it's the John Wayne speech. John Wayne was a fag. What did you say, uh, What? John Wayne was a fag. The hell he was! He was too, you boys. I installed two-way mirrors in his pad in Brentwood. And he come to the door in a dress. Ah, uh, you're fucking nuts. Oh, that doesn't yeah. mean he was a homo, Miller. Don't. A lot of straight guys like to watch their buddies fuck. They do? No, I do. Yeah. yeah. I, I'd love to just uh, go over it. Um, why don't you explain a bit about what, what's said in that speech and, and how it ended up in the film? The John Wayne speech was said to me in front of witnesses, one of whom is still alive, by a guy called Swatty. He had um, 
Arrow Glass and Mirror was his company in Venice, California. And Swati like installed, you know, windows. And Swati swore to me and these other people that were drinking beer in a motorcycle garage. He swore that he had installed two-way mirrors in John Wayne's pad in Brentwood and that John Wayne came to the door in a dress. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, believe it or don't, but that's what this guy told us. <laughs> and so I felt, uh, why not include that in Repo Man? As it's a very, it's a total Los Angeles story. Now, somebody told me that can't be true because John John Wayne lived on a lived on a battleship in 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 San Pedro Bay, you know. But maybe he had a place in Brentwood, you know. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> now, just for some of our younger listeners, you know, that's like saying Tom Cruise showed up at your door and address. I mean, it, it's not the kind of thing you just sort of toss out lightly in, in a studio picture, and yet uh, they they let it happen. Were there yeah, any repercussions? Isn't it? it just no. I guess that they nobody read the script. <laughs> you know, they just hadn't read the script because it was always in the script, and. Uh, <laughs> It's it's yeah, quite it's shocking, I have to say. I did not see it coming. <laughs> but the funny thing is, is I've heard a similar story, but about a different actor, Raymond Burr. And this was the first person story told me they went to deliver something to his house and he, ans he answered in, in a dress. <laughs> and, and J. Edgar Hoover, too, apparently. If you went if you uh, J. Edgar Hoover's office, if you went, if you didn't knock on the door, you'd find the FBI director in, you know, high heels. Maybe they also shopped at the same big and tall ladies store. <laughs> Could be. Uh, well, that's a very funny story and um, a wonderful film. Uh, thank you so much, Alex. This was so fun. Uh, you're such a, a, a an original, and, and I so appreciate you taking time to stop in. Uh, it happened in Hollywood and share the making of, of this classic. It's a pleasure. Well, thank you very much for inviting me, and it was nice talking to you. Okay, and there you have it, The Making of Repo Man. If you haven't seen it, check it out. Harry Dean Stanton is fantastic in it. Emilio Estevez, very charming, uh, right before he does Breakfast Club. And it's really weird and really a snapshot of a place and time. So uh, check out Repo Man. And then before next week... I urge you to check out Wayne's World. Yes, Wayne's World, that comedy classic from 1992, because we have Penelope Spheris, the documenter of this very hardcore scene, making her mainstream scripted film debut. And she is a riot. You are going to love Penelope Spheris. So get ready for next week. And until then, I'll see you in Hollywood. Hollywood.